Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, June 14th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On this week's financial show, we're going to dig into another big Brazilian investment for Berkshire Hathaway. Consumer spending is on the rise. We'll talk a bit about REITs and what investors need to look out for. We'll wrap things up, as always, with ones to watch. Joining me this week, it's my man, certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Pretty good. Sun is shining. Dogs are asleep on the chair. It, it, feel, it feels like a Monday on Industry Focus. Let's do it. I love it. I love it. Lazy Mondays with the dog sleeping next to you. That is a good <laughs> feeling. Well, yeah, let's jump right into it then. Um, last week, we saw a, I think, a very noteworthy headline. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway making a, for most, a large investment in Brazilian fintech uh leader, I guess you could say there. It, it does seem like this is this is a leader in the Brazilian fintech space, New Bank. Um, Matt, let's talk about this for a minute because it does feel like uh, it, it feels like Berkshire Hathaway, the business. I mean, this is obviously we could talk about whether this is something spearheaded by Buffett or his deputies. But at the end of the day, Berkshire Hathaway is certainly making some investments in uh, Brazil, seeing this as a as a one of the one of the pockets of, of opportunity um, out there today in the, in this newly developing fintech space, what do we make of this investment with Berkshire? Uh, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of five hundred million dollar investment they made in New Bank. Yeah, right? five hundred million, which would be a big investment for anybody but Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> um, it is just under 0.1 percent of Berkshire's total capital, or their total market cap, rather. So it's you know it's it's. It could be a needle mover if it's say like a ten bagger, but you know it's it's not a giant investment. But having said that, it's not hard to see why Berkshire might like the financial sector in Brazil. Uh, Brazil, it's a it's a big country. If you're not familiar, they have over 200 million people in Brazil, and their financial system is not as inclusive as ours. In other words, banking has been dominated for years and years by a few big companies. Think of like our big four banks. If there were no one else doing banking. So as a result, there have been millions of people kind of shut out of the traditional financial system. We talk about the unbanked and underbanked population in the US. It's a lot more in Brazil. You'll see a lot more people without a checking account, a lot more people without uh, you know, 401k or or any any traditional financial products. So over the past few years, the Brazilian government has been actively encouraging and incentivizing and supporting these fintech startups. Uh, you remember Berkshire already has a pretty successful track record in this space. They got into Stoneco a few days after the IPO. Um, they're up 160% on that investment um, to date. So that's pretty good. But um, New Bank, it's a, as the name implies, they're, they're a new kind of bank. They offer things like, uh, in addition to like, you know, traditional like cash management accounts, they have loans, they have life insurance products, they have investment products, they offer a mobile payment business. Uh, they have about 40 million users, primarily in Brazil. They're just expanding into Mexico and Colombia. Um, so a lot of a lot of big uh, companies start in Brazil and then expand outward. Um, 
Uh, well, I, I think uh, Mercado Libre is kind of another one that's expands. It's is slowly expanding into like the Mexico and Colombia markets from their core Brazil and Argentina market. But um, so forty million users. The, this invest. This is part of a bigger investment round. They simultaneously raised another two hundred fifty million from other investors, and this is part of a, a funding round that's been going on since January. Uh, in the bank, it values the bank at thirty billion dollars. So, doing just some quick math, this means Berkshire owns just under two percent of New Bank now. Um, pretty big company. Um, if this becomes the next PayPal or the or the next Square, it could be a needle mover for Berkshire. Um, but it looks like they're just trying to get some exposure. I'm pretty sure this was uh, a Ted or Todd investment. I'd be yeah. really surprised if this was Buffett himself. Yeah, but, I think you're probably right there. I think you're probably right there. But it feels like even if that's something that they came up with, you feel like you feel this is something that has to at least go through the front office, right? Well, I mean, those two have pretty f- much freedom to operate. Yeah. Um, there, there have been times when Buffett said he didn't realize the stock that they owned until he reads about it in the paper because <laughs> those guys don't really have to clear anything with him. But having said that, it, it whether he knew about it or not, it's one that I would have to think that Buffett would give his stamp of approval to. Uh, we know that he loves the banking industry. Um, he, you know, he invested in Wells Fargo a long time ago. Has since exited that investment. Um, he Bank of America is uh, behind Apple is the company's biggest stock position. Um, they own a, he owns a bunch of banks. He loves the banking. He loves kind of the 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 whole nature of the business. How it's you know you're using someone else's money to make money and oh yeah and and things like that and. and the Brazilian banking system is kind of where ours was a few decades ago. So it, it makes sense that he sees more – or that Berkshire in general just sees more growth opportunities out that way. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. It does. It does make sense uh, from a lot of different perspectives there. And I think it was really interesting to note too um, that leadership at New Bank actually sees this as is really validation. I mean, that that's actually what the CEO of the business of the company said. He said this is this is a huge validation for what they've been doing. Um, I mean, you you have to believe that gives them the confidence that what they're doing is working and the vision that they see for uh, Brazil's and really Latin America's fintech future. I mean, it, it really does. It, it seems like New Bank is, is a company that's really helping to, to dictate and to, and to help form that. Yeah, no, I mean, Berkshire's stamp of approval is a pretty big one. Every quarter when their 13F comes out, you know, the stocks that they bought go up. The stocks yeah. that they sold go down, and it has nothing to do. Like the business hasn't changed. It's that they don't do or do not have the Buffett stamp of approval anymore. Um, when when um, remember a few years, Buffett didn't own Bank of America till a few years ago. He had a bunch of warrants. Uh, when he cashed in those warrants, then Brian Moynihan put out a letter saying we are proud to have Warren Buffett as our as our largest shareholder. This, you know, same thing New Bank just did. So it's not just New Bank, like you know, a fintech startup that thinks Buffett's stamp of approval is important. Bank of America thinks it's very important. You know, Tim Cook has said he's happy. He's happy to have Buffett as an Apple investor. Uh, you know, it's a big stamp of approval to have because you know a lot of people like it or not. A lot of people invest based on what Buffett does, it's and like, a lot of people take like, their cues from Buffett and think that oh, this must be a real business, especially in the case of some of these startups. It's like Elon Musk tweeting about Bitcoin. Uh, Did you go buy Bitcoin because uh, Elon Musk tweeted about it? 
you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna I'm gonna admit no, I didn't. You know, I'm probably one of the few. I'm probably one of the few. Uh, that that is a sticking bit to, sticking to the Dogecoin, aren't you? <laughs> I feel like we could have an entire show just on that one subject. So I'm just I'm just gonna leave that there. Um, I, I you know I I really do. I, I I love I love the idea behind this investment. We see so many great opportunities out there in, in Latin America today. Uh, certainly Brazil uh, because it's such a big market. You noted. I mean, uh, 215 million and some odd people there. Uh, New Bank with 40 million users today in Brazil and Mexico and Colombia. Big company seems like a big market opportunity in front. So uh, yeah, I, I think this this could work out very well for Berkshire. And regardless who made the investment, uh, I'm, I'm willing to go ahead and doff the cap today at least and say, I think that's probably a good move. And it sounds like you feel the same way. Yeah, I would agree. I, I like this investment. I hope I hope to see them being able to put more capital to work. Remember, they have about $140 billion sitting around, so they could make yeah. 280 of these. <laughs> nice problem to have. Nice problem <laughs> to have. Well, back here uh, on on uh, on domestic soil here, so to speak, Bank of America uh, CEO Brian Moynihan has noted that consumer spending is 20% higher this year than 2019. I appreciate you know, we're we're not talking about 2020 simply because that was just an outlier, right? A, a bit of an abnormal situation. So really, 2019 is the more sensible comp there. Um, not terribly surprised to see consumer spending uh, making such a recovery here, Matt. It did it did seem like uh, there were some pockets that are still recovering. Travel being one, because really, travel is still so much limited, uh, still still somewhat limited, but. Um, generally speaking, it sounds like things are headed in the right direction, and uh, that, that's at least based on what Brian Moynihan's seeing. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the travel thing. Um, he said credit card, debit card, and Zelle payment processing volumes are all up by 20% compared to pre-pandemic 2019 levels. That's after factoring in that travel spend is still 15% lower than it was in you know last year. Like you know, p- people aren't spending money on travel as much. I mean, they're starting to now. Um, and a lot of this gets just kind of passed off as, oh, people are spending their stimulus checks. This isn't going to last. But I don't buy that. Um, I mean, I, I took my kids to, to Disney World a couple months ago. It wasn't because we got a stimulus check. It was because we wanted to get out and we were ready to eager to go do things. Um, people have pent up demand. There's like a, and I, I want to say in a lot of cases, in mine especially, there's like a, a new appreciation for being able to get out and do things. That's something that people took for granted before 2020 and that you don't really take for granted anymore because, you know, the, the I mean, I hate to scare people. The pandemic could come back and then we could be right back in masks and no going out and no doing anything. So people have a new appreciation for getting out and doing things and are willing to treat themselves a little bit more. As the job market keeps continuing to normalize, wage growth is kind of off the charts, especially at the lower ends of the spectrum. Um, you see all, all these... Um, you know, retailers and restaurants have to really compete with each other now for employees. Um, so you're seeing a lot of wage growth, especially at that end of the of the industry. And it's going to lead to kind of a sustained rise in spending, in my opinion, which could be great for the banking sector. I mean, I know we're the financial sector and I'm on the show because I like investing in banks. <laughs> but having said that, I mean, banks make their money primarily by lending money. And higher spending means more loan demand. People aren't, like you said, these are credit card, debit, and Zelle payment volumes. Credit card was the the first one he mentioned. People are borrowing money to do a lot of this stuff. Not necessarily at an unhealthy level, because we also saw savings rates were off the charts in 2020. 
But this also leads to increasing loan demand, which is great for banks. And if you're worried that this is going to lead to inflation, which a lot of people are, and I am, that you know, all this wage growth, all this spending growth, all the you know, supply chain disruptions, things like that are going to lead to inflation, that's good for banks to an extent. Inflation means higher interest rates, which means higher profit, mar- higher interest margins for banks, and especially Bank of America. Bank of America has a lot of non-interest bearing deposits on its balance sheet, which means that as its loan interest rates go up, it's not paying any more for its deposit base. So the you know the gap between them really gets wider. Um, I like Wells Fargo here as a big beneficiary, but their asset cap is still in place, so they really can't make as many loans as they probably would like to. Um, who, who knows how much longer that'll be in there for? But I was going to ask you about Wells Fargo. I mean, they've been having one heck of a year. I mean, obviously that was your call at the beginning of the year for financials uh, stock for for folks to keep their eyes on. Um, clearly performing very well. I mean, to your point uh, regarding that 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 coiled spring, right? That pent up demand. I mean, not only were savings rates abnormally high, um, but we've also seen just a tremendous amount of wealth generated in in home equity, right? I mean, it, if you own a home, and, and I, I've certainly witnessed this, and I have to believe that you have too. I mean, you, your your home valuation, your home value has gone up, and you have more equity in your home now than you probably did before, which gives you the ability, uh, in most cases, to borrow against that equity if you want to do something, whether that's a, a home renovation or taking a trip, whatever it may be. I mean, it just... There's there's been a lot of wealth generated um, over the past year in one form or another. One thing that Chris Hill and I were talking about this earlier today on Market Foolery, and uh, this is something that I had noted back in January from Bank of America's call, and I, I feel like we were seeing some signs of this even back to the beginning of the year because we heard we heard management uh, on the call they're talking about velocity of money. And I, you know, I don't know if people know that's actually a real term. I don't know that they really think about it. I mean, velocity of money ultimately just being the the rate at which consumers and businesses are collectively spending money in an economy, right? I mean, that's that the the rate that that money is moving around. And I mean, you could see that the velocity of money over the past year, twenty twenty, the very very beginning of twenty twenty, the velocity of money that metric it just it fell off a cliff. I mean, so whether you were employed or unemployed in in receiving stimulus, I mean, uh, it, everybody, no one was spending money like they normally did, and and so it has it has led to, like you said, that that coiled spring where there was just so much pent up demand, and and across the spectrum, everybody had a <laughs> everybody had a little money to spend, um, and and it's really starting to play out now. It's it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, I mean there. Like you said, there was just nothing to spend money on. There were there were times in mid twenty twenty where I would have paid an extra thousand dollars for a hotel room just to be able to go just to be able to go somewhere. I uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, um, I'm sure a lot of people felt that way. And you made a really great point that I want to come back to you for a second about the the increasing home values. A lot of people think that refinancing is drying up. Like in twenty twenty, you refinanced, I refinanced. Um, I was talking to Anand Chakavalu on on another show. He refinanced twice last year. <laughs> wow. Um, it's not just about interest rates. You know, interest rates are about where they were last year when I refinanced. But if my house is worth 20% more, I might be motivated to refinance again to pull some of that cash out, which you're seeing a lot of people do. Because that's a much cheaper way to pay for big purchases than to, say, put it on a credit card. Sure. Um, sure, absolutely. And I mean, I mean you can claim that interest on your taxes. 
I mean, a lot of people are doing what I did in South Carolina, building a pool in their backyard because it's 150 <laughs> degrees here in the summer. Um, you know, the, the best way to do it, the loan through the pool company that I looked at, um, the pool company I worked with offers financing, and it was at about 8% interest. Meanwhile, I can do a cash out refinance in my house for 3%, pay for something like that. And it's just a be- much better way to get to make money or to, to get access to your money. So I think you're going to see a lot of refinancing in these, and that also will lift these banks as spending demand increases because the spend the money they're spending comes from somewhere. It can come from credit cards, it can come from savings, or it can come from cheaper costs of bar- sources of borrowing where people have gotten very rich. As you mentioned, uh, home values collectively have risen by more than a trillion dollars this year. Um, people are have have a lot of wealth in their homes now that they didn't have a year ago. That's so I think sure. you, you can see a lot of spending, of long-tailed spending demand come from that. Don't make the mistake of thinking people are spending their stimulus checks and it's about to be done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It is. I tell you, it shows. It shows you the the value in being a homeowner, right? I mean, it, it, it clearly we always want to make sure you're spending within your means, but but home ownership. It's a it's a it's a big responsibility, but it certainly also can open up a lot of doors that might not otherwise open, and um, just just an important thing to keep in mind. Um, Matt, we'd like to talk about REITs on this show, real estate investment trusts. I know that you love digging into the space for your services with Million Acres, uh, real estate winners, etc. Uh, there was a headline here, mall owner Washington Prime, uh, one of the latest REITs to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, and just an interesting backstory there with Washington Prime, where it ultimately, where, where it originally came from. Um, but we wanted, to, we wanted to hit this from, from two angles, I think, really, because first and foremost, we just talk a little bit about Washington Prime and what really prompted this. Um, but then also, generally speaking, with REITs, I mean, what were the signs, or or were there signs that this was coming? And and, and are there things that investors can, can look out for when it comes to real estate investment trusts to make sure that, that they avoid getting involved with a situation like this one? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting dynamic with retail real estate, and in, in specifically right now, um, retail. It really you, this is really highlights how much quality matters in the retail space. You know, you could buy an industrial REIT that has maybe some older warehouses. You can get an office REIT that has some older office buildings, and they could be okay. With real, with retail, the quality really matters here. Uh, Washington Prime has about 100 shopping centers. Um, these are not A malls. They're not the A quality malls. This is not the, the big, you know, destinations. And simply put, the, the impact of COVID is too great. Do you want to tell them where they came from or should I? Well, I, I I wanted to let you do it. I mean, you're okay. you're, you're you're the guest here. You um, know more about this backstory than I do. So so yeah, give our listeners a, an idea of where this where this yeah. Originated. So um, Washington Prime came from Simon. They're they're a spinoff of Simon Property Group in 2014. Um, Simon is is the the A malls that I was just talking about, the destination centers, and and a they, wreath that you like. You've talked about on the show plenty of re- times. You, a wreath that I own it. that I would recommend. Yeah. That I would mm-hmm. I I am a big fan of Simon. That's best in breed. Um. They probably got rid of these assets because they weren't the best assets and they didn't <laughs> want them anymore. This was just an investment decision on their part. <laughs> and it turns out a smart one. Absolutely. So, I mean, the, the impact of COVID was just too great on Washington Prime. Simon not only has the like top quality properties, they also have a top quality balance sheet. 
with a lot of liquidity, a manageable debt load, because they have such quality assets and have, have such a great track record, their cost of capital is much lower than its peers, which allowed them to make it through the tough times better. So to, here, listen to this statistic. Simon's rental income was down 10% year over year in the first quarter because of the COVID pandemic. The first quarter of 2020 was mostly normal, especially in terms of retailers paying their rent. Things didn't really shut down until late March last year. And Washington Primes was down 13%, pretty similar. So both were down around 10% when it comes to just rental income. 10% of the tenants couldn't pay their rent in the first quarter, whatever. Simon was still very profitable. Their FFO, Funds from Operations, which is the REIT version of earnings, was down 11%, pretty much in line with their rental income. Rental income dropped by 10%, earnings dropped by 11%, to be expected. Washington Prime's rental income dropped 13%. Their earnings dropped 55% year over year. The reason is they have a higher debt load, higher cost of capital, and it's just, it's not as high quality. And that's really what kind of is that, that difference tells the whole story. Well, not really the whole story, but I mean, there's a lot behind the scenes that, that goes on with these bankruptcies and, you know, their debt just got overwhelming. Their, their cash flow in the first quarter was down to three, 3.3 million versus 10 million in the first quarter of last year. That's a big drop off. Um, so they're not making enough money to cover their obligations. It's just an ugly situation. This was, this was very anticipated, um, for a company to declare bankruptcy and their stocks only down 20% today. That means it was pretty much a question of when, not if. Kind of, yeah, kind of already priced in there. What do you? So, real estate investment trusts have a a reputation, a a good one for the most part, with investors of of, of high dividend yields. Um, you know, if you're looking for good yield, then REITs are a great place to 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 start your search. Um, now, if I remember correctly, and I think we were talking about EPR properties at some point, right? Entertainment company, and they had suspended their dividend for a period of time because of the situation. Now, REITs do have a window where they're able to suspend those dividends and still maintain that REIT status. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, a REIT is required to pay out at least 90% of its taxable income. If a REIT, and with taxable income with a REIT is much different than its earnings or FFO. Um, because of all the tax advantages of real estate, a lot of REITs show negative taxable income. Um, especially during tough times like the pandemic. If a REIT doesn't have any taxable income, it doesn't have to pay out a dividend. Um, so that's what, you're, that's what you saw with EPR last year. Um, that's what you saw with a, a few of these retail REITs. Um, Seritage, prop, we've, we've talked about a few times, they, didn't pay a div- they don't pay a dividend. And the big reason is because they don't have any taxable income. Um, Tanger was able to suspend its dividend last year because it didn't have taxable income. Empire State Realty Trust, the, the big office REIT, didn't have taxable income and suspended its dividend. So REITs can get away with that for as long as they don't have taxable income. Now, I don't know how long I would stay invested in a REIT that didn't have taxable income, <laughs> but that's another story. But it, yeah, it, as long as a REIT ha- doesn't have taxable income, it doesn't have to pay a dividend. Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day here, the the the, the bottom line with all of this, if you're, if you're looking for REITs, I mean... Just you know, maybe Simon Property Group is really what you're looking for. I mean, try not to make it more difficult than it has to be. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, it's a fascinating space. I, I just, it, it never, 
never ceases to amaze me. The the financial the what the way the finances work with REITs. Um, it's it's just a very interesting space, and uh, it, it is one where I feel like um, you you you've made a lot of good calls on this show in regard to REITs that are that are healthy, that are growing, that are far more reliable than others, and um, this this just seems to to really line up with a lot of the qualities you've been espousing over the past couple of years when we talk about them. Yeah, and I mean, like in retail, like I said, more than anything else, quality really matters. There's a bunch I like. I mean. Yeah, we mentioned Simon. Realty Income is a, a very high-quality retail REIT. Um, ticker symbol is O for that one. Uh, even Tanger has re- Tanger Factory Outlets has really turned it around. Ticker symbols SKT. There, they've done a great job of of kind of writing the ship. Um, and and um, they just added a really interesting kind of tidbit about Tanger. Um, they're doing a great. They've had they the pandemic left them with big spaces to fill. Um, you know, t- uh, a lot of their biggest tenants went bankrupt. Uh, uh, Loft is one that went bankrupt. Um, I, you know, all the ones Simon bought, <laughs> J, you know, I think J. Crew, <laughs> Brooks Brothers, you know, they all went, they left big spaces. So they've done two things. They've been filling them with company, with stores that traditionally didn't have outlets. Like they just opened the first Dick Sporting Goods outlet in a, in a Tanger property. Oh, they require, that requires a lot of space. Which no requires a lot of space. So that was really an outside the box way to do it. And they just added WeWork CEO to their board. Oh, so that kind of gives Old me a CEO clue. or new CEO? The new CEO. Oh, okay. So I was th- going to say. So that actually <laughs> gives me a clue that they might be trying to turn some of these big vacant spaces into to, uh, co-work spaces. I don't care who occupies them if they get full from a Tanger's per- from a Tanger investor perspective. Um, so, I mean, I think that could be a, a, a win-win for both of them. Sure, sure. Well, man, that'll be a fun one to keep an eye on. Uh, Matt, before we take off... This week, we've got ones to watch. Got a couple of stocks for investors to keep on their radars. Uh, what is your one to watch this week, Matt? Maybe we should call it two to watch since we each pick one. Um, yeah, or, well, yeah, two to watch or ones to watch. You know, that's a good point. Maybe we're going to go with two to watch from now on. I like that call. Um, good one. So, I'm watching a company called VG Acquisition Corp., which no one knows what that is, but it's a SPAC. Uh, ticker symbol is VGAC. They're the one that's taking 23 and Me public. The reason I'm watching them this week is because that merger was just approved by their shareholders. It will be finalized this week, and 23andMe will start trading under its own ticker symbol on Thursday. Ticker symbol will just be me, M-E. Um, <laughs> once the deal is finalized, 23andMe is going to get $759 million of cash in the deal. Um, $25 million of that is coming from a personal investment from Richard Branson. Um, they're going to have $900 million in total on their balance sheet. And this is a company that's valued at a little over $3 billion. So that's a lot of cash for them to really supercharge their growth. I'm, I'm, I bought shares before they announced the deal. I bought more after they announced the deal, and I plan to keep holding this. Uh, healthcare is not usually a sector I really, really dabble in too much, but I, I really like what I'm seeing out of this one. Yeah, and the the danger with some of these SPACs, given that 23andMe has been around for a while, I would assume 23andMe is not pre-revenue at this point. I mean, I have to believe that as a company generating revenue. No, they're not profitable, but they're they're definitely pre-revenue. Or no, they're not. No. <laughs> they not have pre-revenue. revenue. They have revenue. They're not pre-revenue. They have re- they they sell a ton of uh, those uh, the home DNA test kits. Yeah, I've used yeah. one. I don't know if you have. Um, you know, my wife got me one of those things, a, uh, 
years ago. It was I was I was adopted, and so I don't know anything uh. really about my biological background. You're their, she got you're their me, target customer base. I am, I guess. But she so she got me. I don't think it was 23andMe. Whatever it was, what was like the first iteration when these things started out? I, yeah, I, I know remember, what you're talking about. I can't remember the name of it now. It was very basic at the time, but I did try it. But well, um, now they're elaborate. They'll tell you if you have a genetic disorder or if you're, yeah. you know, anything weird going on. Yeah, I mean, I think mine I, didn't tell me anything that I didn't know. <laughs> I like, I, I have a very monotonous family heritage. Um, it told me I was a hundred percent Eastern European Jewish. Oh, you knew it. So, so I know that that my parents didn't lie to me. That's where I come from. <laughs> oh man, oh man. Well, yeah. I so I am going to take a look. So another Thursday story here, but Adobe um, earnings are out on Thursday, and this just really more in line with. Sort of 2021 uh, normalizing a bit from 2020. Business is starting to to get a little bit more clarity in spending, and I mean, obviously, Adobe seems to have a a, a hand in everything that's being done digitally these days uh, from a content perspective. Last quarter, very strong uh, quarter revenue was 3.9 billion. That was up 26 percent. Non-GAAP earnings up 38 um, percent. Interesting. They're a little competitor to DocuSign. I shouldn't say little, but they're competitor to DocuSign. Uh, the document cloud business, that revenue was up 37% from a year ago as well. And they're guiding now for full year revenue uh, close to $15.5 billion with non-GAAP earnings uh, closing in uh, on $11.85. So Adobe earnings are out on Thursday. Just to be interested to see how the business is progressing based on uh, the benchmarks they set earlier this year and uh, you know get their, get their take on, on how they see the business uh, side of the economy uh, continuing to bounce back. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on that one. But I think that's going to do it for us this week, week Matt. I, I do uh, I do appreciate you, as always, taking the time to dig in and uh, share what you learned with, with me and all of our listeners. Always. Now everyone knows my genetic heritage. Yep, and I still don't know <laughs> mine. <laughs> I'm going to send you a 23andMe kit after they go public. <laughs> All right, all right. I'll keep that in mind. I'll keep that in mind. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. You can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 